That's why we have so much conflict with our family. People who we know we have love with, we show up in our most messy way. I can go out into town and look like such a conflict transformation expert, and then I'll come home and all of a sudden I'm just at my worst with Sarah. And that's because I'm, I feel safe sharing my wound with her. So I also try to remember when someone's sharing their wound with me, in some way they care about me and trust me. It's very paradoxical. But when I can have that reframe, I'm like, oh, they trust me. They're showing me this broken part. And I can either run from this or see this as an opportunity to help heal what is coming up because of the conflict. And when those reframes, I think, is more than the practices. The reframe is how we then start to be excited about conflict. That it's an, un, it's an opportunity to understand a fuller truth. It's an opportunity to heal. It's an opportunity to get more connected. It's an opportunity to get our needs met. It's an opportunity for more justice. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Possibility Now podcast. I'm your host, Tucker Walsh. Today's episode is about conflict transformation. Um, I feel that this is Ethan at his absolute best. This is really where I feel that he shines. And I'll put it this way. I was thinking, how can I get more people to listen to this episode? How can I um, get this message out there to more people? Because it is chock full of so much wisdom and depth and insights. And a lot of it has come through personal um, challenges and setbacks and uh, learning the hard way, as Ethan describes in the episode. So please consider sharing this with people you know, with anyone who has uh, conflict in their life, which uh, is pretty much all of us. So um, thanks so much for helping to get the word out there. And I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. All right. Good morning, Ethan. Welcome back to the podcast. How are you today, my friends? I'm doing well. I'm really excited about this topic. I feel it's so core to a healed earth and healed humanity. So I'm excited to share um, all that I've learned in many decades of leaning into conflict transformation. Beautiful. So what is conflict transformation? Well, at the root, I feel conflict resolution and restorative justice, the, one of the main goals is to see the other's humanity again. <clears throat> Once we can see their humanity, then the conflict dissolves and I feel like solutions arise. And I, I feel it's also important, I've expanded my idea of conflict uh, resolution to include all living things. So how do we heal a broken relationship with watersheds, with with trees and also oppressed communities and you know so yeah it's just healing that once we see the other's humanity or the other's life as beautiful and part of our greater family then i feel like things start to heal that sounds amazing so how do we how do we do that yeah well i always one i I like to say the reason i've been thrust into a lot of restorative justice and conflict transformation is because I created a lot of harm and had accountability from when I was in high school, breaking into police cars, getting into fights, um, just realizing that I was not functioning well. And so just to know that the 
I feel from direct experience, I've had to do a lot of work around so many issues. And so by being really, uh, the old paradigm of punitive justice was so deep in me. A lot of my learning has been undoing, which is a lifetime's work, my own life. But I'd like to start by just stating it's really hard work. When people enter it and they, it's really difficult, a lot of people will give up on this new idea of restorative justice and conflict transformation. Again, conflict is so important. Conflict brings us alive, energy moves through us, something's coming alive in us. And the transformation is getting that life force and not shutting it down and moving it into greater community and greater connection. But I think that, you know, we have to remember we were raised in a punitive culture. Most schools, family, military, the prison industrial complex, we have 25% of the world's prison population. Um, and all these things are around us. We live and breathe it since we're, 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 we're born. And then we have to also be gentle with ourselves because we're not taught, been taught conflict transformation, the tools and practices in school, in college, in most of our organizations. So a lot of people will take a weekend of nonviolent communication or restorative circles or trauma healing and then be frustrated that it's not working. We have to remember we can't learn a foreign language in a weekend. And this is a new way of being. So we have to realize it's a lifetime work. Another thing I like people to remember is there's a huge psychic load on us right now. The unraveling of ecosystems, racism, the divide. In this phone call, dozens of species will go extinct. Um, we have a lot of, and we feel that because we are interconnected, even if we don't remember. And so that, that load, it's so easy to discharge, which I do all the time, discharge that pain onto the people around me and the people I love. So we have to realize we're all carrying this load and be a lot more compassionate with each other. And a few other frames that I think are helpful is to realize Dominic Barter and all their wonderful people in Brazil developed restorative circles. And one of their learnings was that every conflict in Brazil was at least 500, year old, 500 years old minimum. So we can look at Native American genocide, kidnapping and slavery of Africans, all these things that happen and they're in us. The ancestral healing is so important that it shows that in our genetics, actually harm passes in the genetic content. And when people do this work to heal, that content, which is now measurable, doesn't get passed on. So it's incredible to realize, oh, it's not just me that's not functioning well. It's all this ancestral energy that's being carried. So I think that's really important to remember that. And it's such an opportunity because today I can be part of healing 500 plus years of conflict and harm. And it can begin with you, whether it's having addiction and alcoholism spread through your family or, uh, or sexual abuse or whatever it is, is getting the tools to start healing it. And obviously in our world, I think there's so much conflict. So we realize we're not, we weren't born into a, a world w with equality. We're lacking equality of resources and power. And there's always going to be conflict when there's a power differential. So just the fact that one out of three women will be sexually assaulted, we realize that there are large scale harms that we 
just through birth we inherit and you know we have to take a deep breath and work together to undo these things so and yeah so those are some frames that i that i feel like help myself and others have their nervous system relax of we're not going to get this perfect and both in my own self conflict in myself conflict in my family conflict in my community conflict in the greater world to transform it all it's just one step at a time mm. I imagine one of those steps would be, you said, starting to see the humanity in others. I imagine that might start with seeing the humanity in ourselves. Do you mind speaking to that a bit? Yeah, I, I think um, uh, one thing we learned uh, in our experiment, the Possibility Alliance, which I think is a, hopefully will be a useful model. When we started, we had a conflict conflict system and a preventative system. Well, I'd love to talk about our preventative conflict, how to actually, there's preventative medicine. How do we take, how do we take action, preventative health? How do we take action to reduce the chance of conflict? And these systems are really important because if we don't have a overt system in our family or workplaces, we'll often, when conflict becomes acute, we'll default to the old paradigm of punitive justice. And I've seen this happen in families and communities all over the world. And once we started that, we had this external piece, and then we were practicing mindfulness in the beginning of the PA, having morning quiet, yoga, meditation, prayer, whatever people were called to, walks in the forest, but still conflict was so acute. And that's exactly what you're saying is we realized one, shame work was essential because we are we were raised in a in a culture where shame is so prevalent and i like Brene brown and darren greatly speaks about our response to shame can either be i i am wrong or i did something wrong or i am angry or perpetrator whereas i just did this act. I, I like that in racism. It, you're not a racist. You did something that was racist. Every moment you have a new choice. But I think shame work is really essential. And then we started to realize we also have to do this grieving work because we're carrying all this in the nervous system that really makes it harder to love ourselves and um, just welcome ourselves however we show up. And then on top of that, each year we're like, it's still, we're still in so much conflict. And then we found out about trauma healing, both micro and macro. So, and gratitude practices, all these things helped us welcome ourselves. And when we can welcome ourselves, we can welcome others. And just a story to show my own challenge, like after, you know, 26 years in community and being able to train with people like Marshall Rosenberg and Dominic Barter and Richard Swartz and Carolyn Griffith and all these um, mentors, there was a time at the Possibility Alliance when my second, my stepdad died. I'd lost my father and I got in, a huge, in front of everyone, a huge fight with Sarah and then walked into the kitchen and there's this bamboo rod and I slammed it and then it broke and it went through the window and the window smashed and I was so upset we'd have to replace the window I went out on the porch I kicked this chair and it flew up and I didn't see a jar on the table and it smashed the jar and I finally made it to the I finally made it to the barn to just chop wood to release this anger and I at that moment I felt like I do not belong 
because I I've failed. I'm replaying violence towards people and women and patriarchy. And so in that moment, I think the most miraculous thing that would happen on a good day at the Possibility Alliance is Etta and Sarah were crying inside after my explosion. And then people ran in to take care of them. And then one of my friends ran out to the barn and here I am just so angry, chopping wood, being like, I'm just a failure. And he slowly came up to me, a large, angry man with an axe. And then eventually I put the axe down. And he just hugged me and I just cried. And the message there was, I belonged, even when I was not living up to who I wanted to be. And mm-hmm. to me, that's such a transformational moment that you belong even in your lowest moments. And so that to me is just an amazing healing piece that we have to be reminded that we're lovable. In that moment, I had totally forgotten, but it was my community. I love Audre Lorde says there's, there's liberation is impossible. There's no liberation without community. And I feel like, yeah, I need to, I need to know I belong when I'm not who I want to be. And when you realize you can belong with this pain, this experience is incredibly healing. Just our number one need is belonging. And when someone's present with our pain or our trauma response, our nervous system instantly calms because our story is when I'm angry, when I'm selfish, when I'm mean, I am despicable. I I can't have community. And we, anytime we can take the risk to reverse that, I think miraculous things happen. I see it in my own heart that I can belong with this pain. And that's the beginning of the beloved community. And, and one last thing is there's so much, so much depth in this work, but um, Brene Brown says, when we are socially rejected, all the adrenaline, adrenaline release in our system is equivalent to when we're physically punched in the face. Since belonging is our core need, is a human family and is our greater family of species, when we don't belong, we panic. And so it's really important uh, to realize that when you are cutting someone out of your family or your community, um, they are feeling punched in the face. It's, It's some of the worst pain we can experience. And how do we allow belonging with accountability is also important. So if someone creates harm in a family, how do we hold that we see your humanity, but we need to hold you accountable for this action that created harm? And that's the next balance with conflict transformation is it's not about permission to create harm. It's about a commitment to profound healing. And um, it, it takes a lot of tools and a lot of community and a lot of, a lot of deep, deep work. Thank you so much for sharing that story and, and for your vulnerability. And on that last note, I was wondering if you could continue that story and speak to your own process of accountability and that situation and how you made amends and how the community came around um, to support that process, both for you and for Sarah and your daughter, Etta, and, and everyone else who was involved. Yeah, well, one thing that was really healing, we have to know, um, I don't know where my friend John and McCray found this, but he does a lot of social permaculture, this idea that we have carrying capacity for the land, what's sustainable for all, all life on the land, trees and forests and water. And this term caring capacity, what is our capacity to care 
And depending on where we are in life, if we're dealing to end addiction or undoing white supremacy, our capacity lowers when we're doing that internal work. So I think the first piece in our community is realizing who feels like they have the highest caring capacity at this moment. So a, a dear friend, Beth Campbell, who's given her life to a lot of conflict transformation, felt fine to hold my pain. My, you know, I'd lost my dad to a drunk driver and now my stepfather had died and the conflict came at wanting to spend time with my mom and miscommunication with my partner, Sarah. So Beth really saw me. I, I, I love what Buddha says is like understanding leads to compassion. When you understand where that rage comes from, it's less scary. So first we identified the person who could be with me and that was Beth. And to be with someone who identified as a woman, to be out there in the woods with a straw bell, just hitting it and screaming and raging at the person who was drinking and driving. And these are the structural systems that create harm, the macro and micro or fractal in conflict. And then screaming at my mom has to lose another husband and her pain and how I was helpless to take it away. And Beth just watching me with a smile on her face, just honoring my pain. That's an example of the healing as I, I work to work that out of my nervous system. I like in the internal family system model developed by many people, including Richard Swartz, this idea that all parts are welcome. Uh, we need to love all parts. When we exile part, it becomes the shadow. And so I spent my life trying to exile my anger instead of trying to figure out what is it bringing forth? And what it was bringing forth is it's really upset about um, the structural systems that are creating harm. And hey, it was, um, yeah. I just wanted to back up for viewers who may not have heard the episodes one and two, which cover your personal story. Um, just to clarify, you um, you lost your father uh, who was hit by um, a driver who was under the influence of alcohol at the age of 13, was it, or 12? Yeah, yeah. At 12. And so when you lost your stepfather um, many years later, it is what, what you're saying is it... it um, brought up that trauma again from when you were 12 years old and that's what you were yeah. um, raging um, with the yeah. ax in the wood. Okay. Yeah. And then okay. also re-experiencing the helplessness to support, be with my mom who's just in so much pain again, like a second wound awoken in her. Mm. So this, this model is great because I got to welcome the anger and someone could witness it. And that led to integrating that, where I can now be in relationship with it and being like, instead of being blended and becoming the anger, I can have a conversation with the anger and speak for the anger. Like, wow, this part is really angry right now because this happened and my nervous system can just be more grounded and this can deescalate. And then there was um, a chance for people who, a circle where people could share what their own pain was awakened by seeing a large white male in anger and their safety concerns. So everyone was able to be held. And then this path of healing was me individually working with people and then collectively. And um, yeah, so this is, this is the beginning of our, our work, our, our collective work for liberation. And it's, yeah, it's hard, deep work. I, hundreds of times I just felt like I need to leave. I need to climb a mountain or float down the river just because I'm too wretched to belong. And that's a deep cultural story that we need to, to pivot.
especially when we start looking into BIPOC communities and, you know, hundreds of years of genocide and oppression, just getting the capacity to hold and honor all the anger and emotions that come up from that, that systematic conflict. Mm. Wow. Uh, I'm really just blown away by how much we've covered in, in so short of a period of time already. And it's really incredibly inspiring. And um, speaking of an IFS language, I do have a part of me that's saying, like, oh, come on, Ethan, like most people are just trying to pay their bills and get through another day and not die of COVID and, you know, get, uh, feed their kids and all this feel like you said, it's such deep, hard work. And what is what is what are some ways just some basic easy steps that people can take to begin to introduce this new way of of being and of being in the world um, into their already hectic and and somewhat overwhelming daily lives? Yeah, I, I think um, it's really a personal piece of what tool. There's so many tools, and I really. I usually invite people to try lots of tools and see which ones really sit and really serve you. So one path is shame resiliency. Daring greatly, the work of Brene Brown is just that, that alone is so important. <clears throat> the importance of shame resili resiliency is how shame impacts us. It blocks our courage and compassion and connection. And we, our journey towards our dreams and one of the big reasons is shame reaches us. Um, it limits our ability for wholehearted living. So that's just one, one place you can look. The, the grief work, that's astounding. Um, the Smell of Rain on Dust by Martine Prechtel, for example, to really go into one of these areas to just when we start releasing the nervous system, whether it's trauma healing, um, there's great work like Sarah Payton in your resident self, and there's internal family systems by Richard Swartz and my grandmother's hands by Menachem. And, you know, there's, there's these toolboxes that are really actually quite simple. I think one thing I realize is we, especially in white culture, and we want to do it all now. And one recommendation is like taking one tool and just integrating it into your life whether it's a gratitude practice, they show just at the end of the night, if you name three things that went well in the day and three reasons why they went well as a shift from the depression and the self-hatred to empowerment and self-love, which just starts rippling, rippling to your family and your workplace. Um, and so I think choosing one of these modalities, there's wonderful things like restorative circles and nonviolent communication and start practicing. A simple one that we do at the, at the Possibility Alliance is what, what activity makes you the most present and most alive? It could be walking in the woods, rock climbing, painting, singing, meditating, you know, so many things. We try to make sure that that person gets the time to do that daily. Things that calm your nervous system and bring you back to a place of self. Mm. On the large spectrum what you're saying is so true uh, when i go to my hometown a lot of friends are just trying to stay sober they're just trying to get money on the table and feed their kids in this situation we also need to get rid of the structural systems creating overwhelm in people's lives so that's where 
sharing comes in and reparations, returning stolen resources to black and indigenous communities. So they have a time and breath to lead their own liberation. And so these, this work on class issues and race issues is so important because if we, if a bunch of middle-class white people have the privilege to take a week to do an, a conflict transformation training, that's wonderful. And that's, start, that's starting to heal, but we have to realize until we get in to break down the systems that aren't allowing others to have those tools, we're going to remain stuck. Um, and one larger example of that is in the internal family systems, they have legacy burdens, which I love in their trauma modality is the legacy burdens affect all of us. And some of those are racism, patriarchy, consumerism, um, independence. So when we see that those live and breathe in our system, that system realizes we have to simultaneously heal ourselves and create healing into those structural systems um, for there to be truly the, the, the community where everyone has the opportunity to practice and learn these skills. So it's, it's um, I think each person's tendency, I, I would recommend that some people want to work on the external first, like undoing the industrial prison system, which is a punitive system that's creating so much harm. And that's their first step into conflict transformation. I'd be like, that's great. And other people might say, I need to work on undoing my shame or transforming my anger. That's great. What I think happens a lot in spirituality and in conflict transformation, people argue the best path. And that's where I think we lose that each human's unique and has a different path, especially from your positionality. If you're a trans-identifying person, your pathway is going to be much different than a hetero-white male in rural Maine if you're someone who identifies as trans in the city. So we have to honor each person's pathway. I see so often that people doing internal conflict transformation, people out there trying to undo white supremacy and ecocide, judge the people doing the internal work and vice versa, instead of seeing these are all pathways and how do we hold each other's hands and, hey, I'll join you for prison abolition. And do you want to join me to learn how to regulate our nervous system so that we are uh, better human beings in our family systems, in our organizations. So, yeah, but again, I'll, I'll come back to start with one piece and allow, give yourself space. Even if it's five minutes a day, they show in your resident self by Sarah Payton, five minutes a day of um, a self-connection with your nervous system has a huge effect over months. And then once you integrate that into your life, add something else and just be patient as we, you know, undo all these layers in us. Amazing. Oh, thank you so much, Ethan. Um, I, was, I was thinking a little bit about shame and even just conflict transformation in general. And something I see perhaps it could be called a shadow of this work is when um, it's recognized internally, but instead of it being um, worked on and work and worked through, it is um, projected outward onto the systems or onto other people or, or onto those who are seen as the oppressors. And um, there, it becomes like a new form of um, shame and conflict that's between, say, like in the new age language, it's like the awoken ones and the asleep ones or the, you know, those who are just the, the masses and the sheeps and 
um, or in the activist circles, it's, it's, you know, it would be elites and the masses or the oppressors and the, and the, you know, the democratic people. And so I'm just curious about that. What are healthy forms of anger and how can they be used um, in a way that doesn't just create more division and more separation and more conflict, um, but actually works, actually uses that anger um, to create healing and resiliency? Yeah, that's a, that's a huge, huge question for us all to lean into. And I want to share these, everything I'm sharing are just guesses in my own personal experience and watching the blessing to watch hundreds of people working around transforming their own selves and the people and culture around them. So for me, I think, you know, in nonviolent communication, they say 90% or more of conflict is a misunderstanding. I think that's really important information. And when we can understand, I can't understand the position of somebody who's been taken from their country, kidnapped, and then put into slavery and have a whole system where if I'm black, I have seven times the chance of going to jail for the same crime as a white person in certain conditions. Or if I get pulled over for a traffic violation, I might be shot. I'm not able to imagine what that's like. I can try to have empathy and I can listen. Another important thing is 90% in all this conflict work, they say 90% of the work is listening. So I know in this conversation, I'm talking a lot, but when I'm in the presence of women, queer, black, indigenous, the, the rural generational poverty, I, I just listen so I can understand. And I think that's the first part is realizing we are misunderstanding what's happening and we are not being that, that deep work of humility, which I fail at all the time to realize, I don't know what it's like to be a woman in a society where one out of three are going to be sexually assaulted. I, I can walk at night and not feel in danger. Like when I was in college, a lot of my women friends were like, I don't feel comfortable walking across campus. In that moment, I decided to volunteer to drive the van that brought people across campus at night. That's an example of an external piece, but I just think that part of the humility to really first realize this is why they're really angry, to just come out at saying your anger is just creating more separation. I feel like that actually creates division instead of understanding, wow, you're really angry. You've been facing this oppression and really listening and connecting and then being curious. Are there other ways that we can have justice? And, you know, when we listen to the voices of people like Sherry Mitchell and Adrienne Mary Brown and Charlene um, from Unapologetic, I'm, I'm forgetting her last name, there are voices of saying, hey, there is, a, there is another way that may be more effective. And then having those conversations. And I think on any level, if you're new age and saying like, I'm more spiritually awakened than you, right away, that's creating division. And how do we practice that humility that um, I don't know the conditions. I, I love that one of the Christian mystics said, if you knew all, you'd forgive all. If we could know from someone's birth, 
and experienced their entire life till now, we would understand why they came up with these strategies that are creating harm. So it takes a lot of um, undoing our own ideas. It's a, it, it, at the root, it is a paradigm shift. The last thing you know, I'll say about this when we look at how to, with the cancel culture, with the left and right, with the rich and poor, how do we undo these divisions is we have to realize conflict, you know, our cultural wisdom is avoid and move away, ignore, suppress, conflict is dangerous. We have to take on that avoiding conflict is more dangerous. When we avoid it, it builds. Life is too short. We could be dead at any moment. Life is too short to be disconnected. The further away we move from conflict, unconsciously, we then move away from each other's humanity. We're not aware of that. And when we address conflict, it leads to larger systems that we need to unravel to heal. Um, so there's so many reasons um, that we want to lean into conflict and how do we do it in a way, again, when we see that divide. I have friends who voted for Trump, friends in the Midwest, and friends who voted for Biden, friends who don't believe in the American system at all and didn't vote. And I try to engage in a conversation when someone says all Trumpers are idiots. I just will share stories. Stories are so powerful. There's an amazing African woman, and I'm forgetting her name, that um, someone showed me a clip, and it's the danger of the, um, the danger of the one story, the one story narrative um, that creates separation. And I see that. I try to tell another story of, hey, here's my neighbors who voted Trump. Here's what they've done. Here's what they've done for rural poverty. They supported us when we went to Standing Rock. They, you know, just to not, not to create this black and white narrative. Um, so yeah, it's, it's again, a, a lifetime work, but I, I think we need to watch ourselves the number one in conflict i think it's important to realize that one of the number one functions the ego loves and i i get hooked all the time is to be right and so that's why i feel like we're in this polarity because it's comfortable to be right um we can look at vaccines right now it's great those who who are believing there's nanobots and the vaccines to control us and others who feel like if you're not getting a vaccine you're actually part of creating death to other people, Whew, people are really grasping to one side instead of being with paradox and complexity and just listening. And when I listen to friends who've got vaccinated and friends who haven't got vaccinated, there's, I, I, I can understand their position. Um, both friends who were so isolated and near suicidal, they're like, I don't care if pharmaceuticals are making billions, I'm going to die. I need this vaccination. I'm like, I understand that's where you're at. Um, or someone who says, like, I can't support pharmaceuticals making so much profit and I don't think they're safe, they're experimental. So you're like, I can understand that too. And when we, when we hold the complexity, I like what Dominic Barter and the restorative circle says to be um, omnipresent, to be able to hold all these wide ranging views I think has a better chance of leading to a solution that meets the needs of everyone and leads us towards greater health in ourselves and culture. But each situation is so unique, we have to slow down and really listen. 
as hmm. I'm tuning into my own heart right now, which is just feeling like your words are are so um, mesmerizing and um, and and really beautiful, and I'm really grateful for everything that you're sharing. Um, and there's a part of me that's still asking, how do we get folks, how can somebody listening to this that it does have a lot of anger, that does have a lot of um, uh, shame or rage towards themselves and others and the systems and the vaccines and whatever, how can one begin to get to a place where they have this um, empty vessel that uh, allows for different opinions and different perspectives to, to kind of come through like, winds that are blowing in different directions and to hold all of them and to look at them and to feel intuitively into each one and to find their own paths and the and the pathless paths and when i look into my own life what you know how i was able to begin to get into this place was um through some very intense deconstruction of my own psychology essentially and going back to my birth and replaying every moment of my childhood and the wounds and the traumas that emerged and just basically dissecting every moment of my life that I possibly could, that I could consciously remember and conceive of and, and figuring out how it is that I became the person I am today. And then I began to apply that deconstruction process to the education I received, to the society I grew up in, to the belief systems and the structures around me, to my different privileges, the different countries I traveled to, the different topics I was interested in, to my personality type, my Enneagram type, my astrological type. And it just, it, it goes endlessly on. And right now I'm doing a lot of work on deconstructing my own ego. And what is this, this story of, of Tucker, this, this personality that I've created and that, um, that has kept me under the illusion of being a separate self. And and what ramifications does that have for my, my daily existence? And, and then there's, of course, the, the implications of time and space. And it just keeps on going, this, this process of constant deconstruction. And that, for me, was my path into seeing, uh, into really understanding how others have gotten to where they are. Um, of course, knowing that I could never fully understand, but to begin to grasp um, somewhat of a loose potential hypothesis, um, which created a lot of compassion, um, because ultimately, you know, we're all walking around with, with different variations of wounds and traumas and stories and um, beliefs and, um, and a lot of love as well. And so it's this whole combination, this whole smoothie of um, humanity that is just all these different aspects of humanity and, and being alive that are coming together to create these um, these individual human beings that are all also simultaneously paradoxically a part of the whole. So that was that was my path. I guess I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your own personal journey into getting to this place where you are now, where you're able to to speak um, with such beauty and wisdom, and to and to be friends with so many different people across so many different um, divides. And that seems like such a rarity in today's day and age. And yeah, I would just love to hear more about your own process. Yeah, well, I heard two questions in there. One, again, uh, the practical, what people can do, and then what was my process of healing. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for just uh, being with me, really enjoying these conversations and um, with you. 
my own process was I grew up in a town where by sixth grade I was using alcohol and other substances. Um, we were solving uh, conflict through fighting, physical fighting, and creating conflict and disruption in systems like breaking into a police car because they were breaking up our beach keg party or, you know, disrupting authority. Um, you know, a huge piece we have to, uh, it for me to understand about conflict is that power comes into conflict so much. When there's power over, you're already con creating conditions for conflict. And so... I just intuitively picked up that there was so much, so many authority systems oppressing me. And at the same time, my dad was working in inner city Boston with people from many backgrounds, black, Latinx, and just, I was seeing also systems that were creating uh, structural systems, structural violence, which are things that are just built in society. So I started to, I had no real mentor. So I just started to rage against the system because I saw a power over in the public school systems and lost some friends to overdose and just was so much pain in my system. Why is this happening? So for me, I came to wanting to find a different way because the pain was just too great. Those are combinations of my own way of solving conflict through physical violence watching people die of addiction, watching my dad be killed by a drunk driver. You know, we were all driving drunk in the 80s. I, all my, a lot of my family members were. So it, it was complex because I both knew like a lot of people are driving drunk and most people don't know the consequences. Usually the drunk driver doesn't, isn't um, the one who loses their life. So even at 13, my mom joined MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, and didn't press charges on the man. And I saw that being lived out with my parents, this attempt at something more restorative. Um, and that once I started that commitment, it was just starting to work with my own anger. And there was a time in college when I walked up to someone being beaten up by some men were beating up, up someone on the ground and I asked them to stop. And two women I was with were yelling, stop it, stop it. I committed to not doing violence anymore. And I actually, they wouldn't stop kicking them. And it was late at night and I went and physically stopped them from hurting this person. That's all I had my capacity at the time. And I ended up really hurting. Someone came to me, their face all beat up and I had to face um, what I had done the next day. And it was a, it was a complex because I was protecting the person on the ground. I just saw red and then physically stopped it. And at that point I, I said, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to hurt someone this way again. It was a little hard at that point because I feel like I exiled my anger and I put it into the shadow. So it'd keep coming up at certain points. So you know, it was a long journey of then realizing, like, why is anger still coming up? And then looking at trauma healing and looking at grief and, you know, learning to cry as a someone raised as a hetero man and not seeing tears role modeled. When my dad died crying at a party and people saying I was a wimp and having to, like, work through so many layers 
And I just, um, I think, you know, for me, the important part was realizing, you know, as a 13 year old with so much pain around me, I'm like, why even try? My heart's longing for healing and connection. Why even try? I mean, if we look globally, you know, one out of 14 human beings is a refugee. One out of four people is not guaranteed physical safety. Americans consume one third of the global resources, yet we're one twentieth of the population. It just goes on and on. 70% are lonely. And why even try? And I think a huge piece, something in me decided as a teenager that it's better to try. It's better for my own humanity. And I think I still believe we must try simply because it is what our hearts are longing for. And if we can leave this time together with a little bit more understanding and compassion, a little less conflict, we have reduced suffering. And that once I realized like it's not my goal to heal at all, uh, that's part of the violence is healing everything in all people. It's like, what can I take responsibility of myself and the people I'm around? And once I made it sustainable for me, then I could continue seeking out whenever there was access or availability, um, I would seek it out. And then I became a war tax resistor to try to stop the large macro violence. And then I didn't have much money. So I had to also communicate, hey, can I do this training? As Marshall Rosenberg came to Eugene, they said, you have to pay. And then Marshall gave me all my money back and was like, thank you for war tax resisting. We want you to be here. That shift is also what I think our listeners need to on this show. How do we help other people tell them like, I'll pay for your week salary and send you to this training? Like, how do we create pathways? And that's something that I was experiencing so much pain, I was then driven towards connection um, in a really ferocity. Um, that is, yeah, that has helped me each time to, to undo, you know, it's hard when I've been working so hard and someone say, well, you're now doing heteropatriarchy. I'm like, well, I don't punch anyone anymore. Can anyone like, it feels like sometimes there's no moment of celebration. And that's something of the lifetime work is no one's like, wow, you climbed a quarter of the way up the mountain. I rarely hear that. What I hear is like, you're only a quarter way up the mountain. You're still replaying sexual violence and you're replaying racism. So it's, it's also so important that we celebrate each other. Like I know some of your journey, Tucker, and just thank you so much. I know the excruciating pain and loneliness you went through to choose healing. And I think that's something that we're missing in current woke culture is it's important to keep accountable, to keep healing. We can only heal at our own pace, our own trauma. We can't force someone to undo racism overnight, for example, or heteropatriarchy. And when we do, that's more violence because it's a, all the wonderful Leila Saad and white supremacy, a lifetime of work. So I think we also need to just celebrate. If people knew my whole story, they would probably say, wow, you really have come a long way. Look at what you used to do. You used to steal and beat people up and you're an addict. And just that is miraculous. But it is that breath and realizing that the work will continue. And sometimes that's made me want to give up when I called out as replaying heteropatriarchy in my marriage or in the community or 
white saviorism or all these things. It's just, oh, it's so it can be so exhausting. So we need to stop and celebrate our journey. We need to look back and be like, look how far I've come. Yes, there's a mountain to climb, but I'm a quarter way up the mountain and it's a beautiful view. And even if people are yelling from above you being like, you scumbag, look at you loser creating harm. You got to take a breath and be like, yeah, I want to be where you are and I'm not. And I'm also going to enjoy the view. So I have courage to continue. I've seen so many people give up this path of restorative justice and conflict transformation because the pressure to become perfect overnight is so great that they give up. They're like, I'm never going to please anyone. So why even try? And we need to, we, we, I feel like when we work to give each other the capacity to continue walking towards full peace and full justice, um, in that process, we're creating the beloved community. And I, I've, I've seen it, I think on another interview, I talked about how belong, I felt like when we went to line three to block the oil pipeline under indigenous leadership, being welcomed into indigenous space after the action where we used the piano to blockade and stop line three that was illegally going through indigenous land, that we are given a hand-drawn card and rice and just incredible strength of those women indigenous leaders to like see our humanity even after 500 years of colonization and genocide that is the that is the leading edge of conflict transformation Tara Hoska just the leading edge of knowing all the history and still choosing to take time to thank us is amazing and I I also understand why indigenous leaders and other indigenous spaces I've been in just have the capacity for us to come and do the action and leave. And that also is beautiful. We, we are together, but I, uh, we, I can't demand everyone to be a Tara Hauska that's violent, but I can celebrate that she's up the mountain leading us, um, leading me. And also I have to, especially for my positionality, realize wherever someone is on the mountain is sacred, is holy. And I need to celebrate where they are. So if that celebration is someone who what they have is just, fuck you, stop it, you know, to stop police brutality, they're still, yes, they are wanting to stop harm in a real way. And I need to celebrate where they are. And I can have no idea that if I was in their shoes, what I would be doing. So again, that combination in my own life and as we're doing this work is just constantly breathing, loving ourselves for how far we came, forgiving ourselves for how far we haven't gone and supporting each other wherever they are, wherever we are on the mountain. Um, yeah, because again, when, when we belong, we have more capacity to heal. That's why that's why I'm not going to I don't want to call people out because I know in the white community, when people are called out, their capacity for doing anti-racism work actually most often drops. It's important to truth tell and disrupt. That's an important part of healing, even if it's violence in our own home or alcoholism. And when I'm just for my own life and, and talking to thousands, literally thousands of white people trying to do the work, when they're called in they have more capacity for doing, undoing these legacy burdens and undoing their own 
internalized patterns. With that said, when I'm called out, I also honor that that person is truth-telling and I'm not going to tell them to do otherwise. Um, I, I just listen and say like, yes, I see that. So it, it's really difficult because I don't want to take a position that calling in is the right thing to do at this moment of so much division. I can just say it helps me be more resilient for my anti-racism or my own internal healing or even in my own marriage, how to undo my own patriarchy towards Sarah. And at the same time, calling out has sometimes been what led to me shifting, a ferocious calling out of my patterns with no seeing of my humanity, just like, you're this, uh, was really so stark that that also can be something that pivots us to a paradigm shift. So um, what I would say to listeners in that final part of the question is, Whatever makes you feel more connected and more grounded in yourself and your nervous system, do that. Laying in the grass, music, laughing, and that's your, that's your path. That's the beginning path of conflict transformation. Don't create something new. Look at your life and see what makes you feel connected. In the resident self, one way to help trauma healing is reading fiction. Re- reading fiction, they show in all the tests, is one of the great ways to like regulate our nervous system. So. I, you know, at this point, I'm just like, yeah, trust your own intuition and body is your first step. So you're not having to create something new, which takes a lot of energy. Just focus on something that you're already doing a little bit and do more of it. And then you'll have more spaciousness for continuing up the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Wow. What you said about taking the time to celebrate just resonates at my at the deepest core of my being and um, I was at a kirtan um, a, a kirtan celebration a couple of days ago and I was I just felt this intuitive call that part of my soul's purpose is to help create containers of joy and places where people can come together in community to celebrate life just to celebrate the fact that we're alive even if there's a nuclear bomb about to go off and all the world is going to cease to exist. Like what's to celebrate that we're alive right here, right now in this moment. And also I realized that in my own journey, when I do take that time to celebrate, when I do take the time to feel joy for just the simplicity of, of this, these precious moments um, that I'm actually able to hold my grief and I'm able to hold my trauma in a whole new way. And so it's a paradox that like for me personally, the more, I celebrate and the more joy I feel, the more I'm actually able to do the deepest healing and the, and the darkest you know, aspects of my being. Um, so I'm curious, Ethan, how, how do you celebrate? What are some ways that celebration takes form at the Possibility Alliance? What are some ways that you celebrate personally in your own life? And um, yeah, any ideas for viewers you know, in these, in these uh, <laughs> I don't watch cable news anymore, but whenever I go home to my, my dad's house or a family member and, you know, CNN is on, it's just like, oh my gosh, it's just constant, a constant barrage of breaking news and depression and anxiety. And so I could see the need for celebration to be, you know, so incredibly important now more than ever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'll share some, some pieces of maybe the system that we've had for 14 years that's constantly evolving. Um, one is we we paint and have quotes or, or things pointing towards what we want 
in front of us because and with the news and commercials and our phones we're constantly seeing another story so we want to remind ourselves of the news story as often as possible that, that's that's what i find is really helpful so you know like reading the caravan of joy which we have up when you come to the possibility alliance on our welcoming it says the caravan of joy come come whoever you are wanderer worshiper lover of leaving it doesn't matter ours is a caravan of endless joy even if you've broken your vows a hundred times come come yet again yet again come that's by Rumi. and you know just that visitors have said i read that and all of a sudden felt a little bit more welcomed i mean people come to our door that are um who are dealing with porno addiction dealing with bulimia dealing with so many things and we we put on masks so we can belong because we think that the part that actually needs to heal if we show up with it we will be turned away so just having reminders of the new story around us i think helps because we forget to me i, I agree with um the unbearable lightness of being i forget the author but that it's about remembering or forgetting and so much of mainstream culture leads us to forget and how do we set up systems to remember some of um what we we created at the possibility alliance is preventative systems which i haven't seen in much of the conflict transformation or restorative justice work and we just felt like what is it that we do together that makes us feel uh, less likely to have a conflict and so one of those practices we have is every friday we pull someone's name out of our a, a little vessel that my friend handmade with pine needles and we celebrate that person what do we see in them what do we how do they move us and it's amazing how when someone's picked there because we have so much self-judgment and self-hatred that comes through the culture we're in that just to hear people celebrate you it's not an ego piece it's a remembering of yes i have gifts i'm unique in all the universe i have something to give and how many times I've seen people cry when they're celebrated. And we had a visitor that had a lot of tension and um, self-doubt. And I just asked like, is it okay? Consent is super important in all this work too. If we celebrate you right now and we just shared, uh, you know, you, I think it part of the conflict preventative system is being authentic. So we don't want to just celebrate in a fake way that's creating the harm but we just celebrated this one person visiting from canada and they just were weeping and weeping and then they were like enough enough and like we have more and just they were drinking it in like they hadn't had water for years and because we were being authentic it resonated and helped them remember who they were and so that's just like once a week we have that practice whenever someone's been with us for a week or longer we do a goodbye circle where we circle them up and let them know here are your gifts here's have you touched us blessings on your journey um, to remind them even if there was conflict during the visit i think our culture we focus on what's wrong so often i, I love um as a practice a gratitude practice we have gratitude circles to just remember like what am i grateful today wait 10 minutes until you can actually authentically find something you're grateful for when you're having a really bad day it's hard but um, gratefulness and positive psychology, what I realized is just shifting our focus. 
what's what's amazing is already there. We're just not focused. We're not taught to focus on it. We're taught to focus on the D, not on the A plus. We're taught to focus. If I'm kind to someone for a hundred hours and for one minute I yell at them, everyone's going to remember me yelling at them. I know friends who work in the prison systems. People are called murderers for one second of their life in a conditions that I, I can imagine because I've been in fights where. I'm slamming someone's head into a windshield. The windshield could have broken. They could have died. Like, I can understand that in that moment of heat when you're trying to protect your friends. But for the rest of your life, that one second defines you. You have no other humanity. And that's the restoration and the, that we're all redeemable. So I think this part of it's a radical act to focus on what we're grateful for without forgetting the harm. Um, we have a huge list and it's an A to double Z of practices. Um, we have play together. Like you learn more about people an hour of play than a year of conversation. I think that was Plato. Um, yeah, to travel together, adventure together, singing. In a big study of communities that were resilient, we can look at the Black Freedom Movement in the 60s, um, singing, keeping people connected. And we have, yeah, there's a, ma there's a massive list of practices and they're unique to everyone we were living with felt like these practices actually helped. Um, and that include teaching, studying these tools. So we would take time to study undoing white supremacy or study how to remove our shame response. Um, Hospitality is a practice of just welcoming and sharing, not charging money, creates a sense of belonging. No one has to pay to be here. And that, for a lot of people, that's profound because they might be getting great help or services. But when you pay, it does reduce the experience of belonging often because we can't just get that without paying or without hustling. We have to be slick or look good. So, yeah, these are all, I mean, there's a long list, but I would recommend visitors with their family or their businesses, like what? When we do this together and we feel connected, let's make sure we list all those things. When we play a game together, when we pick an important topic to talk about and listen to each other, when we tell stories of our past, storytelling is a one on our list. So that's, that's prevention. I, I think conflict prevention is underutilized right now in our culture. So um, yeah, that's a piece. And then another piece is having a actual so many amazing conflict practitioners, Adrian Muir Brown and so many others, and Dominic Barter talk about how we need an overt conflict system, conflict transformation system that everyone agrees on. And once, because every group has a has an undercover system, whether we speak it or not, an inadvertent system. So. We just have a simple, we have the preventative systems as A. Let's do as many of those things together. Let's swim together. Let's play. Let's play music. We have a group going to Mount Valley Pipeline tomorrow to stop the harm of bird sanctuaries and, and corruption to indigenous land. That trip is also connecting us. It's like an outward bound trip. We're going to protect life, but we're also connecting through adventure. So practice these preventative things daily with your family, with your friends. And then two, when we do have conflict, we practice let the mud settle. Often we're triggered for a moment. We wait for three days. We often say, if I'm in conflict with Tucker, 
the person I should talk to is the person who loves Tucker the most so I can get the alternate view. That's such a good practice. Our ego wants to talk to the person who also doesn't like Tucker so I can be like, see, Tucker does this, yeah. And then we create more separation collectively. By going to someone who really sees the beauty of you, Tucker, they're going to share an alternative story of mine and I have to allow that disruption. And once the mud settles, if I'm still feel a trigger towards someone, the trigger is the beginning of the enemy identity. One thing we practice is the minute it starts to come up, any kind of trigger towards a person, that's the time to catch it. That's the time to take a breath and be curious, to ask questions like, what am I, what am I contributing to this conflict? Um, and yeah, what's my part in it? I, I love the quote, if you're not part of the problem, you can't be part of the solution. Someone who did work all over the world. If we think that person's 100% wrong or 100% right, then there's less likely to be a solution. And then it's very simple. We just have a third person sit with us to witness us. If we talk one-on-one, -on -one, if that doesn't go well after 10 minutes, they see that after 10 minutes, if it's not going well, you have a very low chance of turning the conversation around. So you bring in a third person. If that doesn't work, we go to a restorative micro circle and then a full-blown restorative circle, which tries to get to, I think it's important to realize when we have conflict, it's one moment. And if we focus on the event, sometimes we miss, we got to follow the mycorrhizal, that's the mushroom. We got to follow it down to the, like the deep area that's causing the conflict. So if we just focus on someone uh, being locked up because of the color of their skin, that's important. But if we just focus on that, we're missing this entire mycorrhizal system of racism that leads to people going to jail if they are black or brown. So similar with my home, I need to know the event was like I broke the window and kicked the chair. That's the event. But then there's a much bigger layer um, that will lead to healing underneath that. So, yeah, I think those two things go a long way conflict prevention and then a conflict system that your family or your friends agree upon you write it up together and just say hey when we're in conflict it's going to happen because conflict lets us know what's important to us conflict when when we're triggered there's there's a wound coming up it's a it's an opportunity to bring healing to that wound so now when i see someone mad i'm like i my paradigm has shifted where i'm like here's an opportunity here's a wounded part of them how can i show up to help healing and then when I also realize that when someone's angry at me, usually the, that's why we have so much conflict with our family, people who we know we have love with, we show up in our most messy way. I can go out into town and look like such a conflict transformation expert, and then I'll come home. And as you've lived with us, Tucker, all of a sudden I'm just at my worst with Sarah. And that's because I'm, I feel safe sharing my wound with her. So I also try to remember when someone's sharing their wound with me, in some way, they care about me and trust me. It's very paradoxical. But when I can have that reframe, I'm like, oh, they trust me. They're showing me this broken part. And I can either run from this or see this as an opportunity to help heal what is coming up because of the conflict. And when those reframes, I think, is more than the practices. The reframe is how we then start to be excited about conflict. That it's an, un, it's an opportunity to understand a fuller truth. It's an opportunity to heal. It's an opportunity to get more connected. It's an opportunity to get our needs met. It's an opportunity for more justice.
Are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. That was my. Oh. <laughs> it just <laughs> no, ended. Was... I was like, <laughs> I had nothing you, more. My, you had a mic drop moment. You ended and you just dropped the mic and walked off stage. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ed, that deserved the mic drop because that was that was just beautiful, Ethan. I'm I'm so grateful for your words. You know, I'm wondering as as you were talking about applying gratitude and celebration and giving the benefit of the doubt to to others. Um, I'm wondering if that same process can be applied towards the larger systems and institutions around us. You know, for example, police officers. Obviously, there's a lot of um, a lot of things that need to be reformed about the policing process here in America. Um, but I would imagine statistically, I don't have these stats in front of me, but I would imagine statistically, even for African Americans, you're far more likely to be saved by a police officer than killed by a police officer. And like just in the broad spectrum of one's life and um, same with like pharmaceuticals. I've had friends who've died from the opioid epidemic. And so I had a lot of anger. I still have a lot of anger towards the pharmaceutical industry, um, but they also like, kept my grandma alive for another decade. And I got to spend 10 years with my grandma who survived multiple rounds of breast cancer. Um, and those were precious and valuable memories that, that you know, mean the, mean the world to me, especially now that she is, um, she has passed on. And then even like our founding fathers yesterday, when we were talking on the phone, we were talking about Hamilton briefly and, you know, the, um, the founding fathers, some of them owned slaves and there were um, kept women, prevented women from voting and whatnot. But there was also some radical, positive and beautiful um, innovations and freedoms and the Bill of Rights that were created, that were um, created huge, um, a, a huge step forward for the evolution of, of humanity, it could be argued. Obviously, there's counter arguments to all of this. So I'm not I'm not speaking in black and white. I'm over overly simplifying infinitely complex and nuanced topics. So um, but I guess my larger question is, in a time and an age where um, it's so easy to create, um, uh, you know, the an evil kind of um, cartoon character out of our institutions and the corporations and particular individuals that are running governments or, or these different elite institutions, uh, is it possible to apply that same type of process to those systems so that um, we can begin to find maybe a more nuanced and less divided way forward um, into the future? Yeah. Um, I. I I see an example that's coming up to me is seeing how often um, white-led organizations trying to do anti-racist work or practicing reparations, showing up in a good way, following BIPOC leadership, we're often um, policing each other in a way that I I I think is counterproductive, and that's an example of focusing, for example. A lot of people, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but some visitors feel like the Possibility Alliance is really should dissolve. You know, it shouldn't exist. And a lot of people are spending time to find what's wrong with the Possibility Alliance, which is important for growth. I mean, it's important that uh, someone came in, and this is the examples I'll use. It's like when we police, when someone comes in and says, you're a sexist organization, you suck, I'm out of here. That's important information and that's disrupting. And that begins the, the questioning and help that happened to us. And then someone came in and said, who had the caring capacity, again, 
that first person is giving a gift, I have to listen to it and, and be grounded to hear like their pain and anger is coming from true injustice. So I have to listen and not take it personally and commit to the work. But someone else came literally a few months later and said, wow, I see patriarchy playing out in your permaculture class and white hetero men and you need to create pathways if you want. Um, you're not charging money, but you need to create more pathways. And um, they also said, I know a lot of people will come to a training for you. We'll come. I'll be an advisor on this. And I was like, that was such a gift. I just started weeping because someone was coming and showing me where I was broken and replaying internal wound and external systems of oppression. And had the capacity to offer to help. Uh, in nonviolent communication, they say like, you wanna go through the, I'm, I'm observing this, I'm feeling this, I'm needing this, and then you make the request. It's believed that most people wanna make other people's life more wonderful. We often have terrible strategies because we don't listen to other people, so we force our paradigm on them to make their life more wonderful, and it doesn't work. It happens with parents and kids all the time. We want our kids to do this and we're not listening to who they're supposed to become. But um, there is a, it, when there's that request, we want that request from that person so, so quickly so that we can start honoring their request to make their life more wonderful, to heal the harm. And when there's a, when we don't get that request, we're left with, what do I do? Now I found out that I'm angry and I'm causing harm, and nobody's telling me what to do. It leads to what I find is nervous system overload, and often will go to shame, I'm terrible, or often go to attack, like trying to defend your, yourself. But when someone offers the fourth thing, the request, the I'm seeing heteropatriarchy in you, and here's what you can do. It's as simple as someone said, read The Will to Change by Bell Hooks on masculinity and healing. Just that was like a life raft. Oh, it's like when someone offers you a way to heal, you also feel their care for you. And it's profound. So I think in our systems, our greater systems, that I feel like is so helpful when we have the capacity. I'm not putting this pressure on anyone to do this, but finding who in the community can go and offer. I just know how healing that is for me. And so now when I see an organization, um, money when I feel like part of macro conflict transformation is you, in, if I stole something from you, Tucker, and it was like, hey, let's be friends, you'd be like, what? You stole my entire land and farm. I can't. There needs to be healing and reconciliation. So we, we find reparations before reconciliation. I would need to make right what was stolen from you. So in the macro sense, I feel like reparations has to happen before deep kinship and reconciliation because we stole a lot, not only lives and culture, but we still land and money from black and indigenous people. So if I see some of the churches replaying white supremacy, I can march in front of them and being like, you're white supremacist. And yes, that will be disruptive, but to actually go and sit with the minister and say, hey, you know about this history, you're interested and you shift. And all of a sudden this, you know, one of the churches is having a decolonization training from the Wabanaki and considering reparations. So it's that piece of that, how can we be invitational while telling the truth and while keeping a hand open? I like Barbara Deming 
a wonderful queer nonviolent activist in the 60s that has been erased because of her positionality. She had the two hands. One hand is up saying, stop, you cannot harm me anymore or queer in people identifying as women. The other hand is held out open. If you're willing to stop, if you're willing, we, you are welcome here. And it seems paradoxical, but I think this is Barbara Deming, amazing if anyone can look into her work, went to Vietnam during the war and just did amazing work. Just this part of like the harm needs to stop now. And this other hand is held out. You can come and be part of this community. And that can happen in our own families. Like you're an alcoholic and you're beating our kids. Like that is going to stop now. And our hand is held out to help in the healing process. That to me is the revolutionary work and it cannot be demanded of anyone because of our capacity where we're on the mountain. So I think that's the other part is if I just try to uh, police someone or especially white police and be like, you shouldn't just be yelling at the cops. That is another form of violence. So again, it's more of like you're saying, it's to be like, wow, you've been oppressed for so long and you have the ability to show up in the streets and protect your family, the black community. That's amazing. So starting again with the celebration, Mark Sundin, who wrote the book, The Unsettlers, I gave him the names of people who really didn't like our project because I wanted the book to be more balanced. And after he talked to those people, he came back and he said, you know what? These people really want the possibility to stop. And he said, I understand, but what about the Pentagon? And what about like Monsanto? And what about the Ku Klux Klan, you know, I think as well as in our own life, I need to look at what I need to heal most. And if the most acute is my anger, I don't want to avoid that and work on something that's less acute. So I, I do believe when we look at institutional, we need to be patient with each other and celebrate each other and focus triage where the most violence is happening. And so, yes, there was violence happening in the PA and we're in the gift economy and we're showing up to Detroit and trying to help out, not charging money and doing trauma healing and offering all that as a gift. And there's still more work to do. But let's not. I feel so much in the liberal progressive culture, we are attacking each other. And that's exactly what these larger systems of patriarchy and racism and ecocide want, because. I, you know, I don't believe there's an enemy. I believe there's very unconscious people that are addicted to greed and power and need to remember who they are. And sometimes, like Marshall Rosenberg says, we need the protective use of force when communities are being assaulted and we're in ecosystems. And how do we do that? Like Barbara Deming with the hand up, this will stop. And my other hand is holding out that you are also a human. That's redeemable that can remember who they are. So in some of those larger cultural systems, I think power is important. So how do we have systems where we're letting those lead who have suffered the most violence? How do we have systems like the advice process or sociocracy where it's a higher chance that power is going to be shared instead of hierarchy? Um, you know, there's a lot of transparency and allowing information to move. Um, all those things are essential in our, in our organizational world, which an organization is just a collection of relationships. I love Margaret Wheatley's work who went to inspire Grace Lee Boggs and others 
um, she says, like an organization is just a group of relationships. So if our relationships are all broken and blame and trauma and conflict, conflict that's not productive and healing conflict, we, our organizations are going to fail at their mission and purpose. And so it all starts again with myself, integral. I have to heal myself of all these um, domination systems in me and all my self-hate and all my racism. And then I have to move out to my relationship to my closest friends and family, move out to the community, and then move out into the world. Marshall Rosenberg, near the end of his life, he said, not my communication isn't working because it wasn't just meant for some middle-class white professor at Berkeley to be happier. It only works when it goes from the self out into the greatest oppressive structures in the world because it's fractal. We can't heal one and then the other. All need to be healed simultaneously. And that can seem overwhelming. But when we breathe in and start with self, I just feel it naturally will flow outward when we're courageous enough to follow that thread of conflict that goes from us to our family, to the structural systems and the legacy burdens. And then we, I see, we see transformational conflict at that level. And yeah, cheering along wherever we're at and holding each other's hands. Audrey Lord, there's no liberation without community. And just, um, we, we, need, we need so much gratitude and celebration for this heartbreaking work to remember who we are. Yeah, beautiful. You know, while, while you're speaking, something that I've been noticing um, in my own psychology recently, well, really over the past couple of years, but it particularly comes up more and more recently is that I have this, I don't want to label it. I was going to label it a trickster element in me, but perhaps, um, perhaps it's not that. But it's a part of me that just sees the perfection in everything. And, um, you know, um, for example, at a Black Lives Matter rally, like you're saying, there's people that are, um, you know, causing physical destruction and smashing windows. And then there's people that are meditating in the streets. And then there's the police officers that are doing their best. And then there's some that maybe aren't doing their best and are abusing their power. And it's all just playing out in this kind of beautiful, perfect mosaic that's leading to these larger evolutionary patterns that are happening. And I sometimes get to this place where I feel like I'm sort of floating above it all. And I feel like there's so much conflict transformation that's happened in my own <clears throat> internal world. And I feel so little conflict with, the, with anyone else. Like I, I just get to this place where I don't want anything and anyone else to change unless they want to change and then they can change and I'm happy to help them change. But I, I just sort of kind of float above it all. And I just see the beauty and the perfection and everything. And I see how there's an obvious shadow to that. Um, but I'm wondering if you can, if you can speak to that, maybe, maybe there's an aspect of that that could be labeled as spiritual bypassing. Um, but there's also, I think a lot of truth to that perfection as well. So I don't wanna also reject that whole notion and throw the baby out of the bathwater because I, I think there's something there that's, that's pointing to a deeper truth about um, you know, the, the perfection of the present moment and everything that is, but also, um, you know, you've done a really great job of reminding me that, you know, like going out and actually creating the change and, and, you know, putting one foot in front of another to, um, 
to, to do the work that's necessary to improve our society, ourselves and, and our systems is, is also equally as necessary as seeing the beauty and, and everything that is at this present moment and taking the time to, to celebrate wherever we are in the mountain. So how do you hold that paradox and, and what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's unique for each one of us. I do believe some people's goal is to hold Eckhart Tolle in The Power of Now says in any situation we can do three things. We can act. We can leave if our if our if our nervous system is flooded and we're super triggered, we're probably not going to help the situation. We can leave the situation or we can stay present and hold that field of openness and see what arises. Um, I, I like that because it leads to like these three choices. And I, I think each situation is different. I, I think it's important in conflict research is seeing that when there's conflict, either external, like a, a riot um, or an uprising, I, I like to call them uprisings because often it's because some huge harm hasn't been addressed. Um, we, or internally, if we have conflict between Tucker, you and I, if we had conflict, we can choose to move away. That's withdraw and hide, silence ourselves. We can choose to move toward, meaning to seek to appease, like, no, 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 it was my fault. No worries to just like avoid the conflict. Or we can move against, try to gain other, gain power over others by being aggressive. So if you we're in a conflict and I'm just like, you always do that. I can use anger to like depress the conflict. Um, all these strategies move us away from connection. And in the macro and the micro, what I like to see is like when, how do we do both again, holding fiercely against the harm, like this is going to stop and an open hand. I am trying to stop your action. I'm not trying to stop you. This action is insane. You are sacred and redeemable. That is a super important part, I believe, in conflict transformation. So I can just use some examples where I think I like I always mention this Buddhist that there's like hundreds of thousands of Dharma gates. I love that because there's so many ways to create healing and peace. And um, in one situation, I was at the Greyhound Terminal in Sacramento. I was sitting waiting for the bus. There was someone with Tourette's who every once in a while was like, fuck her, and yelling. And then they had stopped for five minutes and they're sitting in the seat and I was observing this for a while. And then um, there were four men who came in who uh, there were Latino and they were walking right when they were walking by this white man in the seat. The white man had this Tourette's episode and was like, fuck Yara. And so of course, after so many um, historic uh, violence towards immigrants and towards uh, brown, black people, the four men turned and started to physically assault the white man who they thought was just yelling racial slurs. So this is an example of all the information isn't in the room. So I did what best I could, you know, my choices were like, call the cops and go to punitive justice. Um, sometimes to stop the harm, that may be all you have capacity for, or move away from it. I chose to physically stand up. And, and again, this is from a white hetero male. So solutions can be infinite in this situation. This is just what I did. I 
stood in front of the blows with my hands up, my hands up and open, and I got a punch in the face, and I said, they have Tourette's. It's a mental, I was yelling this, and then one punch in the face, and then they stopped. The man was all curled up in a ball, and we then communicated, and I said, I've, I've been watching the man for an hour, and this is just a condition, and they thanked me. We gave some high fives and they shook the man in the shoulder and said they apologized. The man was relieved because he had a healing moment of being recognized and not being shamed for his condition with Tourette's syndrome. And we all went away as community. Was For me, a punch in the face was worth that healing moment. And I know after it was done, the entire Greyhound station nervous system was in that move away, move towards, move against, flight and f- flight and f- fight. I know that if I went in just trying to physically take the Latino men away, it probably would have escalated or if I did nothing. And after the men went away and we were all laughing and connected, people started to come up to me and say like, wow, thank you. There were people in the Greyhound station that saw that there was another way besides ignoring the harm, which a lot, especially white supremacy, leads us to be apathetic and ignoring it, or creating a punitive system, which most people in a Greyhound terminal know that often calling the cops leads to other harm in the community. People are going to go to jail for a long time for very little nonviolent offenses. So that's just an example of how do we be creative in the moment? There was another time, though, that I was on the Greyhound, I was sleeping, and I came to a bus stop, and uh, man, a, a black man got off the bus and there's three other waiting for him. And as soon as he got off the bus, they started to physically fight them. I was the next person behind. I just woke up. I did not have the capacity and I got off the bus and I run around to the back of the bus and I just took some breaths because my, I was just woke up and I wasn't able to have a creative way as a white person in that situation to create help. And I, as soon as I got to my, my friends that at a community, I shared tears and just said, ah, oh, I didn't know what to do because of the history. And I just could grieve. It's so important to realize the more we talk about shame and judgment, the less control it has over our lives. And this is the vulnerability piece, the vulnerability builds trust. I, I undid that. And then I asked them, like, what could I have done? And finding out ways to being mindful of my positionality to reduce harm. So, you know, there's times when I, I'm going to choose all three of those choices, remove myself from the situation, act, and sometimes I act in ways like when I beat the three guys up who are kicking the guy, you do the best you can to try to stop, to, to stop violence. And I hope in the end we come to that creative, imaginative, loving place where we can do those things like step in front of the man with Tourette's and then miraculously create healing. Like the more we take risks, the more we'll learn how to do that. And it, um, and it takes courage, depending what your positionality is. Um, it's going to be a different solution to make sure you remain safe in that process. Um, safe for the safety you need going up the mountain. Further up the mountain, there are people like Harriet Tubman that she had gone above safety. She's like, I'm those people in slavery. I'm going down. And that was her moment 
to risk everything for love. But we also have to be patient that everyone isn't there right now. And to demand that, again, creates more separation. So how do we help people go along the pathway till we have literally imagine a world with millions of Harriet Tubman's and Mother Jones's and Sherry Mitchell's and Adrian Marie Brown's like that's that's I know the world will become more beautiful um yeah so I hope that answers some of it but I think taking the responsibility that I am connected to this conflict whether it's the destruction of the ocean or the incarceration of black and brown men that's I'm connected I'm interdependent remembering we're all family is an activating source that if it was my daughter being assaulted by them. I brought, yes, how do we remember we're all family? And then I think the floating you're talking about can be super wonderful to hold prayer. I love that Thomas Merton says, without the monastics of all traditions, Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, um, pagan, the world would be in a lot worse place that holding the field of love and prayer is powerful. And that's part of it. And also just making sure we're not leaving the situation because we're afraid to remember that if we want this beloved world, we need to, in creative ways, with our giftedness, bring forth the giftedness into whatever conflict, macro or micro, that we're observing, to bring love and awareness to that. I think it's, uh, I think that's an act of remembering. Hmm. But be gentle when we don't and learn from it. Why didn't I act? I saw harm and I didn't act. Let's look at that. Instead of the shame response, I'm going to hide it. I'm not going to tell anyone I ran behind the bus when there was a fight. You know, um, that's, I, I, I want to just say, here's my shame. I didn't know what to do. I felt helpless. Mm-hmm. So yeah, circles of just supporting each other, like we are now in this conversation is just being curious and knowing we don't know the answer, but we just keep acting to become. Mm-hmm. I have a, a more fundamental question, and it's a question that I've been asking myself, not looking for an answer. It's just one of the, it's a koan that I'm just sitting in and marinating with and seeing what arises. Does the world need to change? Does the world need to change? <laughs> That's just my, my question I, I wanted to throw to you. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. In some of my internal family systems work, there's a question that is, is there a problem right now? And what happens in our nervous system when all my problems are in the past or future, but in this moment, there's actually not a problem. I, and I've even been there where I'm near, you know, I was hanging off a cliff once. Uh, uh, the, the trail broke and I was hanging over 200 feet down to rocks. And I had that moment of like, it's all good. I also, my brakes went and I went in the middle of the highway and a car was coming. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the end. The car swerved around me at 70 miles per hour. But I've had those moments where even when it seemed like I should be like, oh, holy fuck, what's happening? I just had this moment of like, there are no problems. This is just what's happening. I love that Byron Katie and her work, um, says when you argue against reality you lose 100 percent of the time so if i argue that yeah. i'm sick in bed with lyme disease that's another layer of of energy in my nervous system that actually reduces my chance of healing resisting what is so it becomes more nuanced when we think about okay this huge fish farm is trying to come into belfast 
a multinational profit-driven extractive. And I could just be like, well, this is what is. There are no problems. Um, but I also, what Bernie Glassman says is like a letting, uh, watching what's happening and watching what arises. So if I go down and I spend time in the woods and I get to know it and I see where the fish are, I'm going to clear cut all this moss. I start to feel sorrow and grief because I'm connected. And so then I follow that sorrow and grief and where is that going to lead me? So I think at the same, it's, it's paradoxical at the same time by accepting what is happening fish farmers coming in or trying to come in, then I can see what arises, what beautiful, not moral response, fish farm wrong, but I really love this river. I really love this watershed and the ocean is under assault from microplastics and it's our water is life as we've learned from so many indigenous communities and relearning that. So then I can also see what arises and what may arise is once before the Iraq war, what arises, I was going to pray for peace in a public place silently and invite people to join me. This time what arose is I'm going to, we're bringing artists into the woods to paint the watershed and do a showing. And I've gone into the Nordic office and say, I really love this place. And is this really necessary? We don't need salmon for rich people, you know, and have conversations. So I think, you know, what is, there is no problem. And then also trusting what arises in us simultaneously, because as I, I think I said in love's fire, I believe when we let love flow through us and we're not apathetic or, or numb, love naturally flows towards suffering and harm to heal it. Just like heat by the law of physics flows towards cold to equalize so there can be life. And so I think that response is just the universe moves towards life, whether we call it Buddha nature or goddess or love or God. And so I, 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 I just have experienced so many times that I come in really open and then I see what arises. And sometimes what arises is I'm going to grab a piano and lock myself to it and play beautiful music in front of the pipeline. And when the police come, I'm going to say, hey, any requests over here and play a song for the police also and be like, this is creation. I'm going to protect it and not have enemies while I'm moving into a space to protect life and honor indigenous sovereignty. sovereignty. So I think both are important, but if we, I think to look at the motivation of there are no problems, I, I'm, I, what I say is what is the watershed is, which I love and is part of me is gonna get destroyed. If someone was just sawing off my arm, I can be that's what is, and I can respond to like, and I'm going to move away from the saw. You know, like this, there, there's a wonderful well, relationship. When you put it that way. <laughs> well, the, well, it's true just... that if we are connected to everything, we've forgotten we are. So it's easy to be spiritually bypassed, like everything's perfect. But the height, like Hafiz says, if I have a, you know, guru, prophet, I'm going to hold them over a cliff upside down. And if they don't pee their pants, maybe I have a real one. So it's <laughs> yeah. very rare that someone is so like a Harriet Tubman or a peace pilgrim, someone's so, so connected to everything that they realize, like, I'm just helping myself. But when we bring it to home and realize for you or me, I, I'm guessing that if someone was sledgehammering my foot, I'd be like, whoa, I need to stop that in a way that he would pull my foot away or 
ask. And so I feel like the more we understand our interconnectedness and we see amazing spiritual masters, the more they were interconnected with everything, the more they stepped up in the world to create healing instead of violence. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a paradox. The more inner work we do, the more I think we can be pulled to be in the world healing. And the more we're in the world healing and seeing harm, the more inner work we do. So we have the resiliency to show up in that way Barbara Deming is leading us. Hmm. Yeah, beautiful. What you, what you said reminds me of the Ram Dass quote, the world is perfect as it is, including my desire to change it. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really um, paradoxical. And we also have to realize pain diminishes our ability to be aware, to hear, to imagine creativity. Although it, it's interesting that that's how we're built, but as we have emotional pain or other things, our ability to see what's happening decreases. So I do feel like we have so much grief because we're connected to everything and trauma from legacy burdens and ancestral trauma. I do believe we have to heal that. And once that's healed, we're going to be responding in a different way. And we have to remember that too. When someone's upset, we have to realize their creative imagination and awareness has lowered because of that trauma response. And then we have more compassion for it. So yeah, there's, there's lots of um, deep questions to ask and realizing that what's beautiful is my response and your response, if we see harm, is going to be different. And that's beautiful. Diversity is what makes life flourish in the human world and in the natural world. So I think in another conversation, we should talk about the archetypes of change and seeing that we often feel like that way is not the right way, but they're all, as you said, part of the synergy to create a remembering for the human race to return with each other and with the world. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the archetypes and knowing that that's going to be a different episode. I, I've held back on those questionings, but I think that would beautifully flow. Perhaps that could be the next the next episode that we do together. I'm curious. Yeah. We've been talking for uh, a good chunk of time here, and I'm I'm wondering if there's anything else that is uh, alive for you. Anything else you'd like to cover on this topic? And um, and yeah, anything else? Uh, from your own personal story that you feel would be helpful for viewers to know? Yeah, I think I'm feeling mostly complete. A few things that uh, that are arising is one is becoming self-aware. I think awareness is 50% of our work in conflict transformation. Just being aware and saying there is conflict, there is disharmony, being self-aware questions like, why am I not engaging in this conflict? I'm not engaging in it because X. To engage in this conflict would risk, risk X. Often we're conflict avoidant for beautiful reasons. Like my relationship is mediocre with Tucker, but if I address this conflict, I'd probably lose our friendship. So that's why I'm not risking it. So then we, we, we settle for these shallow levels of connection. But um, how to get the resiliency to go up to someone and say, wow, I care about you so much. And it means so much to me. And there's this one thing that has been difficult. A, a quote from the Beatitudes of Community Living is, there is a real violence to proximity without intimacy. And we're experiencing this a lot in modern culture with social platforms. There's a lot of 
proximity without real intimacy. And that that's why people on Facebook are statistically going to be more lonely because we want the intimacy. So becoming self-aware of like why we're not engaging, whether it's in anti-racism work or whether it's a conflict with our friend or family, allows us to be more compassionate with ourselves. Like, oh, I like Tucker so much and I'd rather have a little bit of Tucker than risk losing it all by engaging in this conflict. Then I see, oh, there's a reason. And then self-aware is so huge in these questions. Um, I love realizing we're mortal, what you said, like we could die tomorrow. I'd love, I'd like to end in my conflict. Buddha said, when you realize our lives will end soon, all quarrels come to an end. Imagine with whoever you're with, you imagine they're going to die the next day. Really take it on because they might. I notice so much more compassion, like, oh my gosh, why am I caring that they broke my gardening tool? If they're really going to die tomorrow, it can really shift how we, um, how we show up. Um, and yeah, to also ask what's my motivation for speaking or acting? What's the outcome I'm hoping for is to really be self-reflective, especially when we're in conflict, slowing down. So helpful slowing down to just take a breath with each other. Um, and yeah, I, I think um, there's, it's a huge topic and it's been so beautiful to share. And if any of it's helpful, wonderful. Um, and I, unless you have anything else, I just had one short Zen story to share to end with that I really like. But if you have any other questions. Uh, yeah, I just had one very quick thing come up. <laughs> or maybe it's not a quick thing. It could probably be a whole nother episode in itself. But the relationship between um, our language and our ways of communicating and conflict resolution and transformation. Um, I've, I've seen in my own interactions with folks that I'll, I'll go in intending from a very hard felt place to resolve a conflict. Um, but I will be using language that's been programmed into me from the old story, so to speak, and that oftentimes our our language itself naturally has divisions and a lot of it is based off um, terms of violence and um, and other like war propagated patriarchal um, top down hierarchical um, types of modes of expression. And so something that's been helpful for me is to take a nonviolent communication course and also circling and authentic relating, which is reprogramming my, my brain how to communicate in a way that allows me to own my own experience and, and to, to almost be more present with how it is that I'm feeling and to say, you know, Ethan, when you mentioned your personal story, I, I really felt um, some tightening in my chest and I felt this feeling of fear and anxiety rather than um, projecting something onto you and saying, you know, I really, you, you talk so loudly and, you, and you, um, you really make me feel like shit or something like that. So how, I guess I'm just curious if you can briefly touch on that, the relationship between language and conflict transformation and if we need to transform our language in order to really get to a place where conflict transformation can be done in the most, um, in the most beautiful and effective way. Yeah, that's huge. Um... But I do think language, if we look at just like other languages, like indigenous languages and how they speak of connection, like braiding sweet grass is a wonderful source by Robin Wall Kimmerer. 
just about how when a, a bay becomes a verb, a living thing instead of a noun or an object, or a Daniel Wildcat speaks of natural relations instead of natural resources, how much would we extract if our language from birth was natural relations? So language, I think, is huge, and we also need to be compassionate because, like I said, you can't learn French in a weekend. Maybe some extraordinary gifted person could, but that's rare. So I think when I approach just knowing, like approaching someone saying, I'm, I'm probably not going to share how I want or speak the way I want, but I really care about you. So are you willing to just try to work this out? And that humility is so important. It's like, I'm trying my best. I don't know what, what to do. Can you help me? And sometimes people be like, I don't have the capacity to help you. And that's totally sacred. And sometimes they say, yeah. So we need to be patient. And yeah, reclaiming language, I think, is really important. And in a way, that's an, invi an invitation. So uh, language that reflects the beauty of the world is changing so quickly. And I sometimes will mess it up. And what do we do? I think the key point is what do we do when we mess it up? What do we do when Ethan smashes the window? What do we do when I say the wrong thing in a diverse group that creates harm? And that next question is, I think, where we need to lean in and figure out a way forward that we can have accountability and belonging at the same time. So, yeah. Beautiful. But yeah, Thank language you. is a big piece. Um, yeah, well, I'm going to end with these two short um, Zen stories um, that I, may be helpful, but uh, I always like to turn to language that helps me remember. So there's two short ones. And thanks so much for your time, Tucker. Do you think that you know what's best? Do you think that the world should conform to your way of thinking? All these benevolent people, how much worrying they do. Since ancient times, what a lot of fuss and upheaval the benefactors of humanity have caused. And the second one, and this is all uh, passages by Zhu. If a man is crossing a river, and an empty boat collides with his own boat. He won't get offended or angry, however hot-tempered he may be. But if the boat is manned, he may flare up shouting and cursing just because there's a rower. Realize that all boats are empty as you cross the river of the world, and nothing can possibly offend you. Yeah. How do we sit with everyone's doing the best they can and we're grounded and not offended? We have a higher capacity to heal, help heal the other and ourselves. So thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been an honor to be with you today. Thank you so much, Ethan. And it's been a great gift and a pleasure. I feel so much peace and calmness in, in my inner being and, and I love you very much and it's an honor to know you and a gift to be able to bring your words out into the larger, into the larger world. Yeah. 
Thanks, Tucker. Have a great rest of your day. I look forward to talking again soon. All right. Take care. All right. Peace. If you'd like to contact Ethan, he can be reached at 207-338-5719. That's 207-338-5719. The Possibility Alliance mailing address is also available in the show notes. Until next time, I'm your host, Tucker Walsh. Have a beautiful day.